You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos. I hate calling myself that. And underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hello and welcome to the Delirious Nomads podcast, a heavy metal podcast where Chris Santos celebrity chef, genius entrepreneur, and myself interview our favorite musicians and metal personalities. Uh, We've got a very exciting episode today with a dear friend of mine, someone I've looked up to since I was literally probably 11 years old, Robert Von Blasco, bassist for Ozzy Osbourne, and also Cryptic Slaughter. Yes. Blasco, how are you today? Fantastic. Thanks uh, for having me on the podcast today. I appreciate it, dudes. It's very cool. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Matt, you hit the nail on the head. Cryptic Slaughter. You know, so we're we're close in age, me and you, not me and Matt, me and you. And I was, uh, the first band I was ever in, um, we would play Money Talks as our kind of like to warm up. Uh, I'm sure we played it terribly. Well, we played it terribly. So you, you, had, a, <laughs> you had a low bar to match. So it's all good. <laughs> That's incredible, though. What? Are the, so, I mean, we could start there by starting even before that, because you you were in that band like you were you were a teenager. Yeah, man. It's uh, you know, for people listening, you know, this was 1985, and the the record business and the heavy metal business was a much different business. None of us got into this because we thought it was going to be a career choice, and Cryptic Slaughter ended up not being a career choice, but the, the point of it is, is that we, we did it and all of us did it for the love of the music. It just so happens that one year later, 1986, we get Rain and Blood and, and Master of Puppets. So the career choice becomes, starts to become available to the, the more talented bands like Slayer and Metallica. Um, but uh, Cryptic Slaughter was one of those things to where in tape trading, underground tape trading was the Spotify of, of the era. And that was the music discovery mechanism that existed at the time. Uh, and the band had a demo called Life and Grave that was a hot commodity in that underground cassette tape trading 
underworld. Matt, pay attention. You were too young to understand this this culture. So pay attention. Take notes. Yes. I know about tape trading, Chris. Okay. It was a fascinating sort of underworld of of a scene, if you will. It was really a scene. And like with fanzines and the cassette trading and and all of that. And you know, like albums, you'd tape the albums for your friends and you'd pass that around. And that's and it was the it was the you know the analog music discovery of, of our time. And they started to get some traction and got on people's radar. And at that point they were a three piece and the singer played bass and he just wanted to be the singer guy. So that's whenever I got the call and they were like, Hey, we need a bass player. Cause Bill doesn't want to play bass anymore. I was like, yeah, cool. Wait. So when did you start playing bass then to be able to even do that in 85? I played drums first. Cause I wanted to be Peter Chris. Oh my God. Me too. Yeah. Which, which is odd, right? It's odd that I didn't want to be Gene Simmons first. But I really wanted to be, if anyone knows me and my obsession with cats, I guess it kind of makes sense that I wanted to be Peter Chris. But uh, but I also think, too, that it's a little bit of Bobby Brady-ish where you just want to beat on shit whenever you're a kid. So you want to be a drummer. When Peter Chris quit the band and I got the news somehow, I don't even know how we got news back then. What was I, seven, eight, nine years old? I remember rolling around in my backyard in the grass crying like my life was over because Peter Chris had quit kiss. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. And so I started playing drums first. I wanted to beat on shit. And then you realize that you really can't live like in close proximity to people. If you're a drummer in the eighties and only can play drums and not electronic kits or anything with the volume. So, um, so then I made the decision to pivot to bass because my theory was that there was a lot of guitar players and there was a lot of drummers, but no one, no one, that I knew was a bass player. So my thought was if that I played bass, I could get in a band easier because, because bass players were in short demand and, and, and or, or high demand and short supply. Right. Right. And that just happened to be the complete story of my life as a musician. <laughs> if had I have made a different choice, I would not be on this podcast with you guys right now. But so anyway, yeah, fast forward, we're sticking a demo tape into an envelope, sending it to Metal Blade Records, of which send us back a rec- recording contract. Metal Blade's recording contract, draft one, sign here, as we did. Bam, bunch of kids signing a record deal, put it back in the envelope, send it to Metal Blade. And I believe that our recording budget for that first album was $2,500. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of sounds like it, but, but that's kind of what made it awesome. Yeah. Um, we went, we went in the studio and recorded it basically live over the course of a weekend. And that was our first record. Yeah, man. I mean, it's like, I still, you know, I'm still friends with Slagle and William Howell was our A&R guy and Bill Matorier produced it. And at that time he was producing, um, he produced the first Slayer records and, he produced uh, Corrosion of Conformity and Hyrax and a lot of the Metal Blade stuff. I think he was kind of like a partner at Metal Blade, in-house producer guy. Um, I don't really know the relationship then. It's foggy. It was so long ago. But that's how it started. It was like put a demo tape in an envelope. You get a contract. You sign it. And, and we're all still friends, amazingly. <laughs> you guys were a tour, like a nationally touring act, right? And so did, you, did you stay in school? Did you get out of school? What did you do? Now we toured because we were all in high school. So we would tour like summer break, Christmas break, take a weekend and go to Phoenix and play with Righteous Pigs. 
have a, you know, have a, a week off on Easter break and go up North and play with Wehrmacht and the accused. And, and we, and we, and on some level too, we were a local band, you know, we would play like local punk rock shows or there'd be some makeshift gig at a, a VFW hall or something backyard party. If you search us on YouTube, like one of our first gigs is playing this backyard party, like four dudes slam dancing around a keg. <laughs> this will be out of context for our listeners because we were talking earlier before we started recording. But you know what I would pay $350 for would be to see um, Cryptic Slaughter and Wehrmacht again. <laughs> that, that, that would be worth $350. It's cool that you're into Wehrmacht, Chris. I didn't know that. Only then, though. Like only to transport yourself back in time, not to see us trying to pull it together now. <laughs> what would the 15 year old you would have said if you ever, you know, were told you were going to play with Ozzy Osbourne, however many years later? Part of it would be no chance just because it seems so un, it just seems so unattainable. Right. To where it's like almost like in cryptic slaughter. It's like, we, like I said, like we were, we were just playing music because we loved it. It wasn't necessarily a career choice. Something like a, like a kiss or, or an Ozzy was so like, alien right to, to where if you were going to be in that band what however by the time that we i graduated high school and we were putting out our third record my only goal in life was to pursue music so my my ideology kind of changed over the course of high school and three years of just wanting to you know be some aggressive heavy metal thrash kid wanting to get his aggressions out too chasing down a career in heavy metal um you, you know and um but but even then man it's just like you know the the reality of like oh dude someday you're going to be an aussie's band no fucking <laughs> way you know right. like no no way but i mean fuck but it happened what came right after cryptic slaughter i can't remember so after cryptic slaughter i eventually made my way into hollywood and that was right around the transitional time of cock rock into grunge. And it was hilarious to see these, these guys that used to wear their cowboy boots outside of their stretch jeans to dumbing down the hairspray and trading in their cowboy boots for combat boots. Right. And, and it, it was, it was funny to see bands try and make that transition in real time like in 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 the spot right in in LA but i was kind of more swept into the LA sort of 90s thing that was eclectic right it was like tool and rage against the machine and jane's addiction and it was probably the greatest time of LA music because so much cool stuff was happening but yet it wasn't all trying to be the same thing like the you know the cock rock era was all kind of like how can they out power ballad and sequin trench coat themselves right whereas where it was like nirvana kind of decimated that and brought it down to reality but yet there was still amazing stuff happening so i was in this band called drown that was like this Nine Inch Nails meets KMFDM, sort of aggressive Henry Rollins singing for Nine Inch Nails band. And we were signed by Michael Alago to Electra Records, which if you don't know who Michael Alago is, watch his documentary on Netflix. But he was the dude that signed Metallica and he was the dude that signed White Zombie and 
and he was front row at CBGB's, you know, in the heyday and can tell you tons of Ramones and Blondie stories. But he signed us to Electra Records and we were managed by Walter O'Brien and Andy Gould, who managed Pantera and White Zombie. And we thought we were hot shit. Like, we were like, dude, we fucking got signed by the Metallica guy. We're managed by the Pantera guys. Like, it's straight to the moon for us. And and it didn't happen. We put out a record and no one bought it. And we got dropped in like six months. But the, the, the point of it is, is that because of, because of that relationship with Michael and, and Walter and Andy and them being um, Pantera, White, White Zombie, Metallica, Caius, The Obsessed, um, Prong, all these things were sort of in this immediate circumference, which then sort of by chance meeting that that became the rest of my life. And had those choices not happened, I don't know that I would have been on any of those guys' radar. But because we were managed by Walter and Andy, whenever White Zombie was doing these makeup shows, for whatever reason, Drown was the opener on those shows. And that was the first time that I met Rob. That took a minute to, to put things together. But the first thing that I did after this little tenure here was I joined Prong because Paul Raven couldn't do a tour because he hurt his back or something. And there was like this major tour of Europe and Japan and the US and, and Prong was on this album called Rude Awakening that was super badass. And so I was the bass player on that touring cycle. And that really opened my eyes to things that I never thought. Like I'd never played in front of a festival crowd before, right? I'd never, I'd never left the country because of music. I'd never been on a tour bus because of music. And then that was the thing where I was like, wow, this is awesome, right? This is what I want to do forever or for at least as long as possible. It's so funny when I talk to people now and, and I realize that I saw you then. Because I definitely saw that tour at least a couple times. I was a huge Prong fan, still am. Love that record. Definitely saw that tour a couple times. Yeah. And then that ended kind of abruptly, to be honest. Like, it, it was almost like what happened to Drown happened to Prong. And it was weird because they actually had hit songs. And it, But it was the same thing where it was like the record didn't perform. They got dropped. I mean, that was the story of a lot of 90s bands. There was... There was so much money floating around, like to make a record. Like I remember that drown record we made, dude, it cost like half a million dollars <laughs> to make. That's insane. <laughs> you know? And but that was the kind of money that was floating around because the business was just so huge because they were making the transition from vinyl into CDs. So everyone, and, and CDs were portable and everyone was replacing their cassette collections and album collections with CDs so that it was just, there was just so much money around and budgets were huge. And if you had a hit record that a lot of bands could, especially rock bands, I mean, those were like 10 million sales, right? I mean, it's like all those bands were selling tens of millions of albums, like Def Leppard, you know, like Def Leppard, like the whitest of white bands was selling tens of millions of albums. And uh, and it was just a different world for, you know, for, for rock music. Then. Def Leppard, a hair metal band or not a hair metal band? Hair metal band. If you ask them, they had every intention of being a huge pop band. And they were really at the time. I mean, comparatively to what pop is now, no. But then, you know what was on MTV? 
like Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Def Leppard. That was on all day long. And so comparatively, they were a pop band. I don't see them as a hair metal band, though. And that, that's where they, that's the disconnect for me. I definitely didn't see them as, as a hair metal band. Not at all. The interesting thing about that, too, is, is that I used to live pretty close to Rudy Sarzo. And Rudy Sarzo and I hung out a bunch. And he had a podcast a while back. And, and I did that. And we were talking about that era. And he specifically said that... If it wasn't for MTV, Quiet Riot wouldn't have been the humongous band that they are. Well, it's like, it's crazy to look at MTV's influence and look at like, you know, there are literally bands touring right now, you know, playing yeah. to good sized crowds who had like literally two weeks on MTV in 1989. And they've been writing that ever since. And that's fine, but it's just like insane to me that that's possible. Go to the Whiskey A Go Go's um, event calendar right now. And, and I'm not mad at it because I grew up in the, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I'm 50. Um, and so I grew up exactly like 85, 86. I was 14, 15. And so it was Slayer and it was Metallica, but it was also Motley Crue and, you know, Dawkins and all this other stuff. And I love both, all of it. You go to the Whiskey A Go Go website now, it's Enough is Enough, Danger, Danger, Dangerous Toys. Like they're still out there. Bang Tango, Bullet Boys, like they're still playing. Man, Bang Tango. It's fuck. crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to see Dawkins in December there and I'm not. Ashamed. Is that original lineup, Dokken? Uh It is. George Lynch is actually playing Double Duties. Mob is playing that night as well. I, I had I played for like two years. I would play Words with Friends with uh, Jeff Pilson. Oh wow, yeah, <laughs> nice. Anyway, we don't need to get sidetracked, but just yeah, it is crazy that you know. It was crazy because I was around at the time that Smells Like Teen Spirit broke, and it is no exaggeration, man. Like before that, you would drive down the strip on a Friday and Saturday night from Gazaris to. The whiskey was packed with dudes in cock rock bands passing out flyers to chicks. And it was crazy, like out into the streets and like packed, like you couldn't walk through, right? Like it was, it was bonkers, like hundreds of people. Smells like Team Spirit hit and it evaporated the strip literally overnight. I've been talking about this for several weeks now on this podcast. I'm reading this book called Nothing But a Good Time. To be clear, Chris has been reading this book for like three months. Yeah, because I read it. I well, and also <laughs> to be clear, it's like 600 pages, and I'm down to the last 30. But um, I have been reading it for months. Um, I don't have a lot of time to read, but it's an oral hit, complete oral history of the whole Sunset Strip. And, and right now, I am at the tail end of the book, and every band that you, know, you it starts with, like you know, 1970, 1979, like the iteration of Quiet Riot, and now I'm into. Smells like Teen Spirit just came out and all the bands are talking about how much it sucked for, for them when that when that happened. So I'm actually literally reading about that right now as we're talking about it. It's true. Like Nirvana just blew everything up. Everything. But like what's weird is that like there's that weird like third generation of glam or with like um, Firehouse or even like Nelson where it was like post Nirvana like hair metal, but like still somehow works. And it's interesting. So it was like reaching like a higher level. Like even like Cherry Pie came out in like 92, right? Like Cherry Pie is a post Nevermind song. I don't know that to be factual, but um, we'd have to have our fact checker. I am the fact checker. I'm looking right now. That seems unlikely. I want to say Cherry Pie. Nin- 1990. 1990. Yeah. So it came right before that happened. But I'm just saying there was like, like glam seemed like it was going to a new place before. See, and so this was my point from earlier. So I think Uncle Tom's Cabin came post Nirvana. And that is the yeah. exact thing I'm talking about, where it's like no hairspray, combat boots, 
nose rings, like yeah. trying to fit in. Yep, not quite. Not quite. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we're neighbors, right? Yes. So I think it was I think it was Slagle. Because it was like Slagle's always the dude that's like, oh, dude, I can't believe you don't know Chris Santos. And I and I was like, oh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm eating at his restaurants a million times, and I don't. I don't know. He's made. We've never been introduced, and we we've never. You know, our paths have never crossed for some unknown reason, and you know, until recently. And he's like, oh, I think he just moved into your neck of the woods because you know, like Slagle and I are lifelong Valley guys, right? And he's like, I think he just moved into your neck of the woods, and I was like, oh shit. And that's whenever I hit up bacon and I was like, dude, you got to introduce, like, wait, we finally have to meet. I think there's like, there's so many things that we have to talk about. We have to talk about the Valley. We have to talk about boxing. We have to talk about metal. Like there's so <laughs> much, and we have to talk about eating. Right. And, and uh, there's so much shit. So, all right, well, we will do all those things and we'll definitely hang out. I don't know if you're any good at basketball. I am not, but we can shoot hoops and, and talk about all those things. And I'll, but, and I'll definitely, definitely bring you to wildcard boxing with me. I think that would be a lot of fun, but let's just switch gears. Cause we want to keep this up about you. Um, I know that you're also, you know, you manage some, some, some high level bands. Um, you manage clutch, right? I do manage clutch. Once again, back to this band drown that made all these things happen in my life other than that particular band. But everything that was in circumference of that band paved my musical career. So Drown, we didn't do many tours, but the one tour that we did was, this was 1993, four, I don't remember. And it was Drown, Clutch, and Prong. <laughs> that was the tour, which, you know, so I've, and, and, and Clutch was on Transnational at that point. And they, I think that they had finished recording the space record, but it wasn't out yet, but they, but they still were playing like space grass and stuff, you know, live, um, you know, as, as they do, right. Like they, they continue to, that, that's, that's just how they roll. Right. They'll, they'll play new shit and test it out. Um, and, uh, and I've known those dudes since then, like we became friends and I was obviously a fan and I would go see them play every time they'd roll around through LA. We stayed in touch. Um, and fast forward 30, you know, or 28 years or whatever. And, um, you know, un unfortunately, Jack Flanagan passed away a, a little while back. And he was their, you know, long, long time manager and a swell dude. Totally. If you've ever met Jack, he was the fucking best. Um, and they called me up and they're like, we don't know what to do. And I was like, I, I do. I'm your guy. I'm your manager now. And they're like, oh. Two part question. The first one is, is how do you, you know, how did you learn what you need to learn to properly manage bands, especially, you know, bands on that level that have so many moving parts when they're touring and stuff. And two, every manager that I do know, and I know a handful, um, they love their job, but they also say it's a huge fucking pain in the ass dealing with you people. So <laughs> why did what what about what about it as a musician? What made you want to make the transition into management, I guess, and deal with yourself? Good question. So there was a moment whenever I get the call to join Ozzy Osbourne's band. At that moment, I realized that I reached the peak of a mountain that I never thought that I would climb. And it was very lonely at the top and very breezy very cold and very eye-open that I'm like, but now what do I do whenever he retires, right? Like my whole life was chasing this rock and roll dream. And then it became true. 
And then it was awesome as well as it was frightening because I was like, now I have to find a new dream to chase because I don't want to go anywhere but up. Right. And if I, if, and if, if and when I make it to Ozzy's retirement, where do, where do I go? Metallica or ACDC? That's it. Like, and, and, you know, those guys have guys, right? And nor can I rely on that too, right? Like at risk of sounding like a douche, like I didn't want to go back to playing places less than arenas, right? It sounds ridiculous, but I was like, but I love the business and I want to be in the business and I want to be surrounded by the energy of music and heavy metal and rock and roll. Like I, I want to be in, I want that to be my life forever. Um, but how do I stay in it? And so I eventually came around to the decision of I'll start managing bands and, and I'll get, I'll build a boutique artist roster and I'll do that. I, I think that my thought process was I've been in the business a long time. Uh, the one thing about management is understanding the artist, which I do because I am one. And two, it's about, it's about networking and a network. And luckily, because I'd been in the business since 1985, 86, I have a small network, but yet I still have a network of people that I know of labels and agents and, you know, um, managers and whatever. So I reached out to Vaughn and Kenny and I reached out to Nick John and these were, and, and, and Dan DeVita. Like I had this immediate sort of like network of people that I reached out to that became my mentors and management. And I would ask them the stupidest questions and they would, they loved giving me answers and kind of beating me on the head, you know, with stuff like <laughs> you, you should know this, <laughs> like, but I don't. So you got to figure it out. And luckily I found bands that let me figure it out. They were in a position to kind of figure it out with me. And we learned along the way. I mean, that's, that's the only way, right? There's no college. There's no, artist management college that you can go to. It's like, it's, it's the school of hard knocks. Like you got to find someone stupid enough to allow you to manage them. And, and you just figure it out along the way. And, um, and one of the first bands I managed was this band in this moment who is epically huge now. And, and then I, and then I started managing black Veil brides shortly after that. And then, and then I started to manage Zach and, and, and just that kind of, you know, you have this, roster that kind of ebbs and flows right like you pick up a band the band becomes big the band evaporates the band fires you pick up more it's like nick john always told me it's like dude it's like it's like you're at a bus stop dude and, you know and he's like he's like a bus will come up you'll either get on it or you won't you know and then you'll get off the bus or you yeah. won't and they, it's just that's my analogy i was gonna say you discovered both in this moment and black veil brides when they were like literally nothing right infantile yeah in this moment was a band on myspace that had nothing other than some songs on myspace but they did have like an obscene amount of followers on myspace and and they had a lot of action on their their demo of songs that were up there there was a foreseeable fan base already ignited and so i was just able to come in and and get them a record deal and kind of pour gasoline on, on, on that. And then um, Black Veil Brides had, dude, they had this video out that had like 8 million views on it and like 50,000 comments and shit. And it was like, no one cared. And I was like, dude, like there is a fan base here, like a rabid fan base and no one saw it. But me and Ash Avelson, who was their agent, saw it and we got it and 
got him a deal and and then you know the rest is history then we put out their first record and then major as soon as that record came out major labels were up my ass to sign the band it was fun it was fun times and then now in this moment black bill brides are currently on tour together right now oh wow <laughs> so <laughs> yep so it's it's funny how how, how that all kind of happened but so to answer the question that's how i got into management and then i've been doing it for like 16 17 years at this point and a band like clutch comes in and they become available and they're my friend i was like let's just try it out we're friends like if it works it works and if it doesn't work fucking you know no big deal. We're still friends. Right. And, um, but we we're here, we're over a year in and, um, it's been awesome. It's been great. And I think that, I think, I hope that they would say the same thing, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, sorry. What, what was the other part of your question? I, um, I think I, I think I was just asking like, why, what well, you, you've answered both. I think just, you know, what, what appealed to you about it. And, and, um, because I mean, uh, there's not, maybe I just don't know them. Maybe I don't know the stories, but you know, Typically in my head, there's managers and then there's musicians. I don't see uh, so much crossover, right? Um, on, on, on the high level like you, where you play with Ozzy and you're managing a band like Clutch, like that's kind of unique, right? There's Yeah, there's very few. There's Paul Geary, who was the drummer of Extreme, and he was the manager of Godsmack. I think he may even still be or whatever, but he, he, has, a, he has a pretty decent roster of which I don't have committed to memory. Um, Des Fafar, that's the singer of Devil Driver, um, man, has a management company. He manages um, Cradle of Filth and Ginger and um, a few right. others. So Chuck Billy does it too, right? Chuck Billy manages as well, right? I think so. He did for a while. I don't know if he still does. Um, but, you know, there, there, there's a handful. There's a handful of us that have um, got into that business, you know, for better or for worse, you know, and um but yeah, man, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I speak the language of the artist, so I'm not saying that it's easy because it's not, it's a difficult language to, to understand, but I do understand it. And so, you know, may, I'm not saying that makes it easy, but, um, but it's, it's something that I just know, like, it's just like, if I have a, if I have a unique skill set, it's that I speak the foreign language of the heavy metal rock and roll artist. <laughs> Right. I do want to put you on the spot here and say that that I would if, if, if you would agree to it, I think that this is going to be our first ever part one of a two part podcast because there's still so much to cover with you. Would you agree to come back? It has to be a part two. We got to do the whole Aussie years. We got so much stuff to do because the episodes are 45 minutes for the you know listener tolerance. And also too, my cat groomer just texted me and asked if she can show up a little bit early. So here we are. Destined for a part two. Okay. What have you been doing like during the pandemic, like the pandemic to now? What what have you been doing? Obviously not touring and stuff. Hanging out with your cats. What else? The pandemic was the reinvention of the music business in terms of my perspective and the people that I work with. I had to get on, get on the phone with these guys and I have to go like, imagine that, imagine a music business unlike the one that you've known your entire life. We have to imagine that this is a science fiction movie and that we are in a new music business, meaning that the way that you used to get your art to the fan was is that you would travel to them and you would play your art in front of them. 
but because of this pandemic and, and COVID doesn't make you any less of an artist, but we have to figure out a new delivery mechanism to get your art to the people that want to consume it. So we had to reinvent the way that we delivered these guys' art to the people that wanted it and actually needed it, right? These people needed this art more than ever during this time, but they couldn't leave the house to get it. So we had to figure out new and inventive ways that may or may not carry over to, um, you know, as we slowly kind of get back to people being able to do shows and how that works. I mean, we're having to kind of figure that out and people living in bubbles and three to seven page protocol, you know, uh, lists of protocols that bands have to abide by or not abide by and, you know, run the risk of getting COVID. And if they do, how does that work? And do we, we have stunt doubles on deck? Do we, do we put things on tape? Like, how does it work? Right. And, and so we're, we're, it was, it was a challenge, but you know, fuck it, man. We were all up for it, you know, and we made records. We did live streams. We fucking made crazy merch. You know, we did whatever we could and we kind of let the, the fan dictate what they were, what they were up for, you know? And, and that was different. And you started doing A&R for Ripple. And I started getting into other things, right? I mean, it, it was like I did some music casts, if you will. And I, I, I started doing some stuff like that. And I just, you know, got it. I, we tried different things. Some things worked, some things didn't. Some things worked temporarily and by design. Uh, some things were just to shake off the fucking boredom, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and whatnot. So, yeah, man, it was... Uh, this last couple of years has been a real kick in the nuts, but, um, but here we are, man. We're, we're still talking about it. Still talking about it. Uh, can you talk about the experience doing A&R for Ripple Music? Yeah, that was a thing that I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to A&R because A&R was a thing that whenever I was making or seemingly making the attempt at transitioning into something other than hired gun, heavy metal bass player guy to guys whose band name is their own name. Uh, um, I was like, I first wanted to be an AR guy. Like, that's really what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be like a Rick Rubin, Dave Rath type of character where I was could sign bands and be in the studio and make records. Like, I love that aspect of the business of taking these, taking these bands and helping them create their presentation. Right. I've always wanted to do that and never had the opportunity until now. Ripple and um, Todd, I've, I've been friends with Todd for years. And, and Todd hit me up one day and he's like, dude, like you should maybe like sign some bands to Ripple and curate like a little small like collection of bands under your under your ideas of how you want to how you want to make these records. And, and I go, that would be that'd be cool, man. Like, I, I love that. And he gave me the opportunity and I'm putting out, you know, three records this year and probably three records next year. And it's been really fun to get in and these bands listen to my ideas or, you know, we kind of go back and forth and figure out what works. And, and um, it's been fun. I think we, I think we made three kick-ass records with three kick-ass bands. We will do it again, you know, next year, depending on vinyl production, if we can actually make a piece of vinyl in 2022 or not. 
yet to be determined, but um, that's the idea. It's getting harder and harder all the time. All right. So listen, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to cut this off because we're at our time limit, but um, we are going to, this is the first, this is after, I don't know, almost 30 podcasts. This is our first now official two part podcasts. Hell yeah. So we're going to, we're going to end it here. We're going to, we're going to have you join us again. I would assume next week when this, when this airs uh, so that we can talk about cats, we can talk about the Aussie years. We can talk about what's next. Um, we haven't gotten to what's next yet. Totally. You're going to train me in my boxing career and in, into my, my, my 50 year old boxing career. Yes. I'm always looking for sparring partners, man. So <laughs> hell yes. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Well, thanks for being here, man. Really appreciate it. It's been fascinating. I'm psyched to continue the conversation. This has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. Yes. Thanks everybody for listening. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you everyone out there for listening to Delirious Nomads sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.